0: Welcome to Soft Pass, hosted by John Michaels, a 30-year veteran tour manager and sound engineer for some of entertainment's most well-known touring acts, and Alan Tillis, a mild-mannered writer and entertainment lawyer by day and a rowdy musician by night. Join them. As they sit down with songwriters, musicians, producers, managers, and touring professionals to talk about what really goes on behind the scenes in the studios, offices, and on stage in the entertainment industry.
1: Welcome to another edition of Soft Pass. My name is John Michaels. Joining me is my co-host, Alan Tillis. And Alan, this month we have a really cool show for everyone, don't we? I'm so excited. I love these guys so much. This month we have two industry hotshots. Our first guest is Elliot Lewis, who's played with too many people to really mention. He worked on the Live from Daryl's House series and played with a ton of people there. But his full-time gig, when he's not writing or working on promoting his solo albums, is playing Keys with Hall & Oates. And from 89 to 2002, he also played with Average White Band, really everything but drums, it seems like. But Elliot's escapades in the music industry reach much further than those few things, and we'll get into that, and I'm sure there's some great stories in there as well. Elliot, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: All right, and uh, our other guest is drummer Herman Matthews, another well-known hired gun who's played with some of music's all-time greats, including Stevie Wonder, Elton John, Celine Dion, Luther Vandrus, and many others. Uh, He currently plays with Tower of Power, but... He's still just a drummer from Texas and an all-around great guy. Herman, welcome to the show.
3: (laughs) Thank you for having me. How are you doing?
1: Good, man. We're going to start out this show with something new. It's a segment called Name One Thing. And it's a really simple game used to break the ice with the guests. So we'll start with Elliot, and then we'll go to Herman. Here's the question. Name one thing. Now, this can be a food item or gear or something personal. Name one thing that you absolutely have to have at the gig. And why like Michael Bland needs a bag of Tootsie Pops when he's playing. What do you guys need? Elliot? Good monitors. (laughs) 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 Everything else is (laughs) icing. Well, I figured you'd be on in-ears at this point.
2: I am actually, but only recently. Most of my career has always just uh, been normal uh, monitors. So it's it's a new transition for me to be on ears. Only been about two years for me or something like that. But they're cool. I like them. I don't think I could live without them now. But our stage volume is pretty heavy duty, so they were a necessity.
1: (laughs) Herman, what do you absolutely? have to have at the gig
3: an icy cold sugar-free red bull okay your tech
1: has that on the list he puts that up there every time
3: exactly when i'm starting out there it's right there and then midway through i have a shot of tequila so it kind of balances (laughs) itself out
4: i gotta have a diet coke so my throat is okay to sing I, i that's how i clear my throat out during the course of the night
3: you know i've heard that I've heard that Coke and potato chips, it gets all the crud out.
4: I don't know if you can hear, Herman, since we're not in the same location, but what am I chewing on right now?
3: Sounds like peanut brittle.
4: That's it. I've got my (laughs) little Herman's peanut brittle that I'm sitting here eating while we're doing this show. Oh, my goodness.
1: (laughs) As long as we're talking about food, Herman, i got to ask you one thing. As I was doing research for the show, I was on your website, and I watched a little piece that you called a drizzle. (laughs) And I have two questions about this. I, you know, you figured that the video would have stopped the questions, but here they come. Okay. Uh, number one, do you often prepare food with a scarf on or was this just a COVID thing Two, If we're massaging the leaves after the drizzle, how much of the drizzle is transferred to your hand? And is there like a quantified measurement? Like, is like a skosh of the drizzle may end up on your hands? You know, for those who want to get the full drizzle.
3: I had a scarf on? Yeah, you, were, you had a scarf on. It was hilarious. Was it on my head or around my, my neck? No, no, no. It was around your neck. Oh, okay, okay. No, I think I was just, I, I don't know what that was all about. But uh, as far as the drizzle is concerned, I just want something to wet the leaves. That's really all. And then after that, I try and uh, wash my hands. And that's all I put on. And then I season it with uh, salt and pepper.
1: Salad Lessons from Herman Matthews.
3: That's really it. I mean, I just want to massage the leaves with some uh, extra virgin olive oil. I mean, I don't use any other dressing at at all. I just use that. That's it.
1: Didn't know this was going to be a cooking show. (laughs) (laughs) Right? We touch all bases here. Elliot, walk us through what it's like to do a gig at the White House. Oh, my God.
2: Uh, First question. Yeah, that's pretty funny you should bring that up. That, I mean, what can I say? It was an unbelievable experience. I'm so happy, personally, that it happened when it did. We got invited to do the Governor's Ball. We pretty much assumed that, of course, Daryl and John were going to meet Obama and Michelle. And we didn't know if we would actually meet him. We knew we were going to perform for him. The day before we did the show, we got the message that he insisted on meeting everybody the band and the crew, which, which I thought was pretty amazing. So go through all the security protocol that you have to go through to get in. And, you know, they put you in a room and we get lined up, you know, you walk into this room and and there's Obama with his hand out going, Hey, Elliot, welcome to the White House. Thank you so much for coming. And it just like mind blowing. And Michelle was like almost basically hugging us, really genuinely happy to have us there. It was just a beautiful, beautiful experience. We did the show. It was just like a four-song show, like 20 or 25 minutes. Uh, we did Sarah Smile. We think we did uh, You Make My Dreams, and No Can Do, and whatever else. Maybe she's gone. At the end of the four songs, you know, it was planned where Obama was going to come up and thank us, and that was going to be it. And he was like, uh-uh you got to play some more. (laughs) you got to play some more. So to see those two in the front row, just singing to every song, too. I mean, they were holding each other and they were singing. They were really in the moment.
1: So was it stiff? Was it everybody seated or were they dancing or what was the scene?
2: Yeah, everybody was seated. It was just like a governor's ball. So there were some governors there. And it's in that room that we've seen a lot of musicians perform at over the years. Um, I forget what that room was called, but it was. You know, there was only probably, I'm guessing, 50 or 60 people there in a lot of security. It wasn't that uptight. It was pretty loose because of President Obama's vibe and Michelle's vibe. They were really into it and made it like, okay, let's this is a little gig. (laughs) So it was very cool. And afterwards, Biden came up and he was like hugging everybody. And it was like, they tell you, don't do selfies. You know, don't try to do selfies with them. So, of course, you respect that. And Joe Biden's going, where's your phone? Let's do some selfies. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <It> was <awesome. laughs> what was the hospitality like? Did they put you in a green room and stuff and give you like little some drinks? and?
2: Um, no, it wasn't like a green room. I mean, they put us in, God, I should know the name of the room. I mean, <laughs> we've seen all the presidents in this room and we were there before we went in to do the show. So there wasn't a green room per se where they have drinks and stuff, you know, that was sort of all done beforehand. I surprised you passed the background check too. Yeah, right. <laughs> Luckily, but no, it was fantastic. Definitely a highlight, one of the highlights of my career for sure.
1: Did you have the moment where you're, you know, you're in the middle of a song and you're just kind of taking it in? And you just had that moment where you're like, I, I can't even believe this.
2: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, it, definitely an outer body experience. I've had those a couple of times in my career. They're they're pretty amazing. They never cease to amaze
4: me. I, I got to imagine some of the live from Daryl's house episodes are, are the same because you're playing with legends like uh, Krieger and Manzarek and, and Smokey Robinson. That's got to be an out of body experience.
1: Yeah. What was that like getting a call from T-Bone 24 hours ahead of time saying, hey, uh, we need a bass player? Well,
2: you know that story (laughs) a little bit. That was exactly right. That was still pretty early on in the whole show. So that was maybe four years into it. I think we did nine years total. So that was maybe three years into the episodes. And that was going to be the one show I wasn't going to play on because they were going to do it in L.A., which they did. They just didn't need me t-bone was playing guitar by that time he had transitioned to guitar and they assumed that ray manzarek was going to play you know keyboard bass like i guess he did in the doors the night before the, the shoot was going to happen so it was like oh do your thing i I, w- I didn't really care about not doing this particular episode i mean i would have loved to but uh but i i'm in my little home studio and i get a call at about nine o'clock at night and it's t-bone and t-bone said hey al we screwed up, man. Can you learn Five Door songs and be on the seven AM flight to LA <laughs> with hanging up the the phone with T Bone within like five seconds? I had my bass in this in my room <laughs> and was downloading door songs.
1: <laughs> wow! Oh, what a cool experience, man. I mean, speaking of TV shows, Herman. Yeah. During the 90s, you got to either play with or watch from the side some of the most quality names in hip-hop. I'm talking like Tribe Called Quest, Diggable Planets, Pete Rock, Nice and Smooth, Gangstar, Easy, P.E., Jodacy was on, Pac was on. I mean, who was the talent booker for that show, man? Like, oh, I know, right? Some of the people they had, oh my goodness. It was like cutting edge. How old was J-Lo when she started on the second season? We're talking about In Living Color? Yeah, yeah.
3: I did put that down. You know, they only had a live band for one episode. Are you serious? That was it. They were going to give it a try. They did the live band, and it was a great band, and it was a great episode. But they did it only for one show. So to be honest with you, (laughs) I did see J-Lo, and uh, that was wonderful. But that was it, man. That was it.
4: Who else was in the band?
3: Oh, wow. Uh, Wayne Lindsey, keyboard player. Freddie Washington on bass. Wow. I think it was Paul Jackson Jr. on guitar. Either Paul Jackson Jr. or Ray Fuller. I can't remember. It was a smoking band. We did like a day of getting it together and then went in and, and played the show. And that was really it, man. That was it.
1: Did they never brought you back for other stuff?
3: And, and soon after the show ended. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's it, right. right. It was a Hail Mary to try and do something different.
1: Looking back on that show, I mean, I can't believe it was one of those family guy things where it ran and it just went out. But then you look back now and see who was in that show and what they had on it. Just mind-blowing. Did you ever get to talk to Jim Carrey? Was, is he as nuts as he was in that documentary I just saw recently?
3: <laughs> I did not. The way they did everything, they did our segment, and then they did everything else. So no, we weren't around anyone. We were pretty isolated.
1: So it's just something cool to put on your resume. Yeah.
3: Well, I did it. And I, I did it mainly because I played with those guys. And I went, oh, man, I got to let somebody know. <laughs> <laughs> but the breadth
4: of people that you've played with stylistically is just so amazingly broad. John mentioned Stevie Wonder, but Celine Dion and
3: Cheryl Crow, Body Rape.
1: Oh, Bob James.
3: Right. Oh, yeah. I toured with Bob James. I think I did... Did I do two and a half years with Bob James, which was an interesting story. How I got that gig. I moved to LA mid '88. Was working with Kirk Whalum after working in Houston and working six to seven nights a week in one of the top bands. The oil all fell out of Texas. We went from playing the hot spots in Houston to playing the Holiday Inns and you know like an hour away from town.
1: Sugarland, yeah yeah you
3: know Baytown and that kind of thing so literally driving home one night i just said you know what am i doing i'm gonna move to la and then three days later i get a phone call from kirk whalum who's you know who kirk whalum is i'm assuming right yes yeah sure, sure. so kirk calls up and says hey man how you doing and in short just says uh I-, I want you to be in my band it says but the thing is you're gonna have to move to la And so I said, well, can I think about it? He said, sure. And I went, okay, let's do it. (laughs) That was three days after me making the decision to get out of Houston. So now I'm playing with Kirk Whalum. I think, you know, I'm into it for a couple of weeks and I'm moving to L.A. The second and third night I'm in L.A., I'm playing the baked potato with Kirk Whalum. (laughs) Wow. And the place is packed with the four shows, you know, sold out. The percussionist Doc Gibbs, Leonard Gibbs, is in the audience. Bob James is looking for a drummer. And Kirk Whalum is letting Bob know that, well, my drummer would be interested. Doc Gibbs is calling Bob saying, hey, man, I just heard this drummer. He would be great for the gig. And so Bob is thinking it's two different guys. (laughs) And And it was me. I got my next two or three gigs Touring gigs after that. Kenny Loggins. I got an audition with Al Jarreau, uh, all from those two nights at the Baked Potato.
1: See, I told you, Alan, you just move to L.A. and you fall upwards. That's how it works. You just <laughs> Something happens. Well, do you approach
4: these gigs differently when you're playing with Kirk versus Carol King versus Tom Jones? I mean, how do you approach those different genres differently for each kind of
3: game? I get that question all the time. Because literally my resume playing with Tower of Power to playing with Teresa James and the Rhythm Tramps. I mean, playing the Texas bluesy swinging straight eighth note country rock kind of thing to playing, you know, 16th note funk with Tower. Or when I'm playing with Timothy B. Schmidt and playing all the Eagles stuff. It's not that I'm trying to be the best drummer that I can be. I'm trying to be the best musician that I can be.
1: Yes. Well put.
3: So it's not about me. It's just about laying two and four down, maybe adjusting the feel a little bit. And that's really about it. It's like that old saying when people say, hey, man, I want you to play funkier. Well, a lot of drummers play more. Well, I just play less. And then that's (laughs) funky. You know,
4: Every time I've seen you play with such a variety of folks is that there's never too much Herman. Never.
3: <laughs> this is the deal. I grew up playing to records in the basement and, you know, put the records on and I would play to all of that stuff. I never heard overplaying or I never heard drum solos. My mom's taste was the whole Motown, stacks, Philly
1: thing. Gamble and Huff. Right,
3: right, right. And she loved Charlie Pride. My dad and my uncles, they were like all in the family stone, more of the funkier psychedelic thing. So, I mean, all of that stuff was in my
1: house. While you were listening to those records and playing with those records, Elliot was playing with Peter Frampton at age 12. Uh, yeah. <laughs> did, you, did you understand how heavy that was while it was happening? Or is that something you reflect on now and just go, Wow. <laughs> I knew it was pretty heavy,
2: but when I played with him at that point, I was 14 years old. Woo! It was just before the live record, Frampton Comes Alive, came out. So it was right at that moment where everything exploded for him. But we, we, I had, you know, two older brothers that had brought me up on Humble Pie, then his solo stuff. So I was well acquainted with what he was doing and how great he was. My friend's father became his promotion man at A&M Records. He came over to the house one day with his wife or girlfriend at that point, Penny, and they spent the whole afternoon at the house. And Kevin and I had our stuff set up in one of the rooms because we literally would jam and play every day for four or five hours. And we went down and played with Peter. It was pretty awesome. But not only that, that whole period of my life around 13, 14, 15 or even earlier, through this guy, was me going to Madison Square Garden every week. I live in Connecticut. They were in New York. So his son and I would go into New York and see either Peter Frampton or The Who or Elton John. But we would go back and meet them, too. That's great. It's a pretty incredible way to grow up, you know, knowing you want to play music for the rest of your life.
4: Is that what led you to Dan Hartman? Well, Dan
2: came a little bit later, actually much later. My first real big concert was at Madison Square Garden, seeing Alice Cooper, for instance, through this friend of mine and and met him. So that completely like changed my world forever. Like pinnacle of my career was always going to be, if I could play Madison Square Garden, I can die now.
1: <laughs> wow. I have a question about the stuff you did with Dan Hartman, though. Yeah. he's If people don't know, he wrote Free Ride, and I Can Dream About You, and a bunch of others. Yeah. You guys did some work for Joe Cocker and Tina Turner, I think, and then you went on to hook a publishing deal with Sony. Yeah. And then you were kind of on your way, so to speak. But what was that experience like, writing... Both for someone other than yourself and with someone else, because now you're like a self-contained songwriter and you play at multi-instruments and record everything on your own. Was there stuff that happened early on where you said to yourself, well, I'm going to have to do this on my own?
2: Yes, that's exactly the way it happened. The thing with Dan made such an impact on me. My brother was working for a booking agency and he was booking average white band. He also knew Dan. So somehow, I think he got my demo tapes that I was making at the time to Dan. And Dan said, Hey, I could use him for some of my sessions. I'm always looking for somebody. I was really, really into the whole technology thing at that point in the 80s when the, the technology just exploded with synths and samplers and sequencers. I sort of dove headfirst into that whole thing. Dan basically. Hired me to program and play on a lot of his stuff. And so uh, one of the Tina Turner hits, Simply the Best, and a Joe Cocker record, and a uh, Nona Hendrix uh, from the Pointer Sisters, and a couple other things. I mean, I didn't play on the James Brown record that he was making. Living in America, I think it was basically Dan let me just kind of just stand over his shoulder and watch what he does as a songwriter and as a producer so that completely just changed my world and it gave me the information and the confidence that I was looking for to sort of make my own way into the business really at that point that's all I wanted to do I kind of had given up on playing live and being in a band I was just solely focused on being a songwriter and a producer the information that Dan gave me was amazing and he became a really close friend we went out to dinner all the time and he basically basically took me under his wing, which was amazing because at that point I had no track record. You know, I hadn't worked with really anybody. And he had his choice of all these amazing New York session musicians.
4: And is that what led you to Aftershock with AWB?
2: Yeah. Like I said, my brother was working for a booking agency and he also passed along one of my demos to Alan Gorey. We got together basically just as songwriters. Now, I had just signed the first publishing deal with Sony. The average white band were disbanded at this point. This was probably around 87. I think they disbanded in like 83. And, you know, and then I I met Alan. We started writing songs together. We probably wrote, I don't know, close to 100 songs over the course of a couple of years uh, until they decided to make a sort of a comeback record and bring me into that. And that was like in 89, I think.
4: And then all of a sudden, I found myself in a band. The question I've been dying to ask both you and Herman, both of you stepped into, in separate bands, really big shoes. Yeah. I'm really curious to know what kind of positive and negative reactions you guys got from the various fans of each band.
3: Well, Well, first of all, Elliot, you were in AWB when Pete Abbott was playing drums, right?
2: I was, yeah. When Average White Band started back up, and we did shows with Tower, you were the drummer. Oh wow! You absolutely made a mark on me. Now I started as a drummer. I'm a drummer originally, so and I've been blessed to work with a lot of great drummers. I can say honestly that you made an unbelievable mark on me as a drummer. I thought your drumming abilities were unbelievable.
3: I was going to say the same thing when I heard you with A W B. When we had those opportunities to play together, which I guess are more often than not. Yeah, I mean. AWB had the hits, and you guys would come on first and get everyone up on their feet, and everyone is just shouting and having a great time. And I mean, the band was bumping. You guys were kicking butt. And then Tower would come out and just knock everybody out. This is a great combination. Totally. But yeah, to fill the shoes of David Garibaldi. Now, the advantage that I had was that David hadn't been in the band for a lot of years, a whole lot of years. I mean, you know, I came in replacing Russ McKinnon, which is an interesting thing because when I was asked to be in the band, they wanted me to start January of 94, and I couldn't start because I was working up until March, and so they waited. The first thing that I did with Tower of Power was a sold-out record, so I was in the studio with them first, and then after that, they had a gig, and I'm turning to them saying... Well, when are we going to rehearse? And they looked at me as if I had egg or something on my face and said, we're not rehearsing. (laughs) So I had to go and write out all of that stuff that Russ McKinnon had played in order to just get on track with them. So now your question about the feedback from the fans, I would get everything from, man, you know, this drummer is great. He's bringing the band back to what it originally was. To, who is this guy thinking that he's is David Garibaldi? Who is this guy who, who thinks he's he sounds like David Garibaldi? And not that I was trying to play like David, because no one does play like David. My thing was I was just honoring the parts that were played from the records I grew up on.
1: You're just trying to do the songs justice. That's it. You lay back, though, and if you listen to that horn section, (laughs) it seems like David would almost push the pocket where you lay back. So how did you acclimate to dealing with that with no rehearsal? Well, <laughs> you don't like
3: well, that was the thing. I almost felt like I did the band a disservice from me hanging on the bottom of the beat as much as I did. When I left the band and I went back and I heard David with the band rehearsing, I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. They leaned forward, you know, to the point where it felt uncomfortable to me. Since then, you know, when David, I think David had double hip replacement surgery, he was out for a year. So I went back and I subbed for him for a year. And also, David got hit by a train, if he didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. And I subbed for him for a year then. So my thing is since it's not really in my constitution to lean forward, I just counted the tunes off faster. I see. (laughs) That was about how I can line it up with the grid and not think about the back end of the beat so much. I just kind of sat on it and and stayed there.
1: What about you, Elliot? Did you get a lot of guff from the fans? Um, You know,
2: it's so... Weird to me that I even fell into that role. It was something I never set out to do. At that point in my life, my focus was on being a songwriter, producer, engineer kind of guy. And then I worked with these guys on their comeback record. They booked some shows and all of a sudden I'm in a band and I'm going, oh, this is originally what I wanted to do. Then it became, okay, well, you're going to sort of take the place of Hamer Stewart. You're going to sing his parts and play the bass where he did. And it was sort of natural for me to do because at that point in my life anyway, I had a pretty high range in my falsetto. So I could sort of get my head around trying to mimic or try to cop his feel a little bit. He was a very, very unique singer. Nobody sounded like him. So I knew I could never really duplicate him, but it was going to have to be my own version of it. I felt like at that point that I was pretty well accepted by their fans. I think they were just happy to have the band back.
1: This is before social media, though. Also, totally. So you didn't have the direct access to that stuff. Yeah, so. right,
2: right. I don't think people at that point would come up and go, "Yo, dude, you're not, you don't sound anything like." <laughs> or you know, they were pretty courteous. And when AWB came back, they had to climb up again. You know, it started small. They had a smaller booking agency, and it had to grow naturally. One funny little story, though, it was still so new to me. You know, I knew, obviously, some of their hits, but one of the first shows we did, we played in in Washington, D.C. And for whatever reason, now, I wouldn't have known this, but Alan, for some reason, omitted Schoolboy Crush. (laughs) (laughs) We hadn't learned that. For average white band to play in D.C., and not do schoolboy crush all I could say was it was a mistake <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah Damn. so they quickly <laughs> realized that they better have that in the show quickly the fans were not happy and that actually became one of my favorite songs to play just because the pocket and the groove in that
4: is just so deep but didn't you stick some oj's in there playing that solo Yes, I
2: did. You, oh my God. I can't believe <laughs> if you remember that. Yeah, I think I threw a little uh, money, money, money in there. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> I I love that. Herman, what did you do with Stevie Wonder? Did you record or did you tour or what'd you do?
3: I played a handful of shows with him. I think four shows. It was the Nelson Mandela tour. When Nelson Mandela came to the United States, he would speak and then afterwards, Stevie would go on and play, which, you know, gave Nelson Mandela an opportunity to get out of the arena.
1: Something I know about Stevie, so at those gigs, did he jump up on your kit? Because I know he likes to play drums.
3: He didn't do that. We were doing some new material, and also we were working out. That was the first time I ever used in-ears. It was like really early on. I wasn't so much worried about the 70,000 people that were out there. I was worried about that little one individual playing keyboards. We also didn't do all of the hits that I wanted to play with him, but it was nice what we did. Did you not play Superstition? We did do that. (laughs) And I got to say, we did it with a proper drum intro on it as well. (laughs) I was happy about that.
1: Both of you guys have had to step into all kinds of musical situations as hired guns and working with other people. And sometimes with very little notice, like we were talking about with Elliot, have there ever been times where... You just you do all this prep and the gig turns out to be just totally different than what you had envisioned and it's just nerve-wracking. Is there one that sticks out more than the rest?
2: There's been a few situations that you have to learn stuff on the fly very quickly. And honestly, in the Hall and Oates world that I've been in for quite a while now, when I entered into it, I never ever expected to be a keyboard player sort of on the level of the keyboard players that they had. When Daryl asked me eventually to be in the band, the position that was open was the keyboard position. So I said, of course, I'll take it. I do play keys, but it's not something I set out to do. There have been some moments, but not a lot. Probably Herman has probably experienced more than I have because I've been in this one situation. But in that situation, the live from Daryl's house, there was one band early on, I think they were called Company of Thieves, Something like that. I'm not sure they're even still around, but they were really good. They were duo, very, very musical. And we had already probably done 10 shows by then, so we were kind of on a roll. But their music was so not ordinary in the arrangement sense. Normally, songs have intros, they have a verse, chorus, maybe a B section, a bridge. Their songs sort of didn't have that form to it. So when you listen to them, you thought, wow, they're pretty easy. But then the arrangements don't follow the normal form. And that's happened a couple of times, actually. Daughtry was another one who whose music didn't necessarily follow a lot of the arrangement forms that we sort of get used to. You know what I mean, Herman?
3: Yes. With me, when I would get a call like that, I always like to be prepared. So they send me, say, the music or the MP3s or a recording of the stuff. I write everything out. Yeah. I write everything out so that where we'll start from is what they're used to. Right. But what happens usually is that Yes, that's the way they did it in the studio. Now they've been playing it live. It's totally different, you know, so.
1: It's got a new intro, got a new outro, (laughs) extended bridge.
3: And sometimes even a new feel. Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of weird in that way. Yeah, I've stepped in it many times. But, but you know, hey, like Elliot said, I, I'm having a good time.
2: For me, you know, I'll be perfectly honest, I don't read music. So for me, it was always having to rely on my ear. So early on, especially in the live from Daryl's house, we'd be working with Smokey Robinson one show, and then it would be something rap, and then it would be something country, and then it would be something R&B or rock. So I didn't want to have to look down at charts. I would make my notes and my, my sort of guidelines. I was the guy in the band for a while that just literally memorized everything. It helped my ear a lot. Of course you have to, you know, make cheat sheets, but like I'm not reading notation. I just I don't read music. So it was a good thing. It was a blessing and a curse in some ways.
3: <laughs> for me, I try to read the music as if I'm playing it by ear. You understand what I'm saying? I want it to be as comfortable, like, you know, I'm there in the moment, yet I'm gonna hit the sixteenth note hit that's going to come up at the beginning of the bridge, you know.
4: I think certain people, you know, crazy fans like me, right, we're expecting to hear that particular riff. We're expecting the chorus to sound this certain way. And then perhaps you do the solo section your way a little bit differently, but it's that core uh, riffs, if you will, that, oh, yeah, that's supposed to be there.
3: Right. For me, playing with Tower, the intro to Squibcake's or the intro to those iconic drum fills that come in. I have to do that. Although David Garibaldi, who's back with the band now, he never does it. (laughs) I mean, he's never doing it, but I always felt like that I had to.
2: That's a good thing, though. You're just respecting what was there to begin with. That's probably what the fans really want. Except for the
3: one guy who thinks, who is that guy up here who thinks he's uh, David Garibaldi? Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I try to, with every band that I play with, I consider it like you're reading a book, if you will, or you're listening to a certain kind of music, and I try and respect that music and play it in that field. And, you know, even doing drum fills, they have to be in the same language that, say, the book is in. Yeah, I'm not going to go in there and do that inverted paradiddle that kicks off with a hi hat foot, bounce off the cowbell, nothing but net lick in a song that timothy b schmidt is
4: singing yeah yeah it's not about me it's never about me. a a proud daddy moment that you're responsible for though you know you you talked about your first album with tower was sold out and you know the song sold out you're the one that counts it off on the record oh yeah oh yeah i get this record and my daughter my younger daughter is not very old at that point. It's probably five years old. I slip it in the CD player in the car, and we play that first track. Sold out. Gets to the end of the track, and she goes, "Daddy, play that again."
3: Ah, I love it. I love it.
4: I got her. I got her. She's all tower.
3: That's great.
2: That kind of groove and soul is so infectious, I think it touches everybody at any age. You can put that kind of music in any environment and people react to it.
1: They talk about how songs are timeless, and a lot of that's reflecting to the words of the lyrics of the song, but I think what you're touching on there is timeless music. It's just good.
2: It's also very reliant on rhythm, and rhythm moves people. And so much of Tower of Power's music, for example, is so about the rhythm. That's the essence of soul and funk. And it's, it really all comes down to the drummer. <laughs> in other music genres, it's different. It's the melody and it's the structure and the arrangement. And the drums are not the focus of the song, but in soul and funk music. man, it's the drums. That's where it all starts.
3: Well, I will always say that Tower of Power, that's really the, my only self-indulgent gig. I'm a song and lyric guy. If I'm not hearing a lyric with a song, it's not complete. I'm not big on solos. I do them. Yeah. I'm not big on the over-the-top fills. If I had to, I would do it. When I was out with Richard Marks, his music is pretty pop-heavy and pretty tame. And and as he always says, the song has been written. I had this one two-bar drum fill that Jeff Beccaro played on one of his records, you know. But I'm going to make it my own. And I went for it. <laughs> And afterwards, of course, Richard comes back and says, Herman, 1% less fills. I said, well, I only played one fill. And he looked at me and went, there you go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what kind of crazy shit happened on the Richard Marks tour? Like with the women, I can't imagine how crazy it must have been.
3: <laughs> with Richard, I did like his last major tour.
1: It doesn't matter. I tour with 70-year-old <laughs> man, Mark Andes, the girls are hitting on him all the time. It never ends with that.
3: Well, I will say this. After working with Kenny Loggins and seeing all like the first four or five rows of beautiful 30 to to 55-year-old women Uh, who were about, you know, just wanting to do whatever. right? And then with Richard Marks, seeing younger girls, but seeing the whole first level like that. It was pretty amazing.
1: The first time I worked with Gavin DeGraw, I know, Elliot, you're kind of fond of Gavin. I toured with him for a while. I had no idea who Gavin DeGraw was or anything. I was on tour with the Support Act. We were out for like nine months or something. We start the first show, and it was in some college town Boston and on some college campus and the lights go down and all of a sudden, these flash bulbs start popping off. You would have thought Michael fucking Jordan was walking into the arena. <laughs> and then Gavin walks out on stage and he sits down by his piano. And all of a sudden, the entire room smelt like pee. <laughs> I was just like, who is this guy? Wow. It's just crazy when that's, that's stuff that happens. Well, you know, we were talking about in the first episode with Dave Anderson, the first time you're ever in an arena or a big room and you hear like... 5,000 women scream at the same time. That sound, you know.
2: (laughs) Gavin DeGraw has got some energy. Oh my God. Yeah, he's cool. I like him.
1: We had a real fun one. I don't know if you guys are familiar with a uh, Florida venue called Janice Landing. I'm sure you guys have probably been through there. Oh, yeah. So we're playing Janice Landing. It was the last night of the tour. They have the dressing rooms in the back. So you go up behind the stage, up two or three levels or something. And then on the outside of where the dressing rooms are, there's a little balcony kind of area. And you can look over... And you can see the the stage from looking over the balcony. They had no... We were the opener, so we didn't get any hospitality or anything. This is a van tour. Right. So we had like a thing of grapes that was left in the fruit bowl. So we walk out, we're, we're munching on the grapes, just kind of watching the show. And Michael Tolcher, the opening act who I was standing out there with, he takes a grape and he drops it down. And we kind of count how long it takes to get there. Because when you look down, Rodney's floor, Tom... <laughs> I mean, you had just a perfect shot. So we would try and time where he was going to do a fill, and then we could hit the floor tom with the grapes so it sounded like a bag of oranges falling down the stairs. Oh,
3: my God.
1: (laughs) Well, that was like our last night tour prank. I took one of these remote control fart machines and I taped it to the the 91 inside the kick drum. And then I was trying to trigger it during soft parts. It was like a tour prank kind of night. Yeah, but great guys. I mean, real fun tour. It was amazing. But I had never seen that kind of... That's the closest thing to like... The Beatles that I could think, my generation, because I'm a little younger. Wow. It was, yeah, all these women just going crazy. And you saw it build every night because I got on board right when his album was taking off. So it would just build every night. The crowds are getting bigger and bigger and the screams are getting louder and louder. And it was just starting to get craziness backstage after a little while.
3: Now for the rest of the night, I'm going to be singing that song in my head. (laughs) What a great tune, you know, come on
1: i don't want to be yeah i don't want to be his great song great song elliot speaking of some of those uh live at daryl's house shows or live was it live from daryl's house live from daryl's house yeah from daryl's yeah. yeah okay so you did a bunch of gigs with some pretty heavy hidden people out of everybody that you played with is there yeah. one that just kind of stands out above the rest?
2: That question I've been asked a lot as well.
1: <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure you have an answer for it. I mean, I, Billy Gibbons, John Resnick, there were some pretty like decent people that played on that. Just Smokey Robinson, like you said. The OJs. You got to tell the Jose Feliciano story. You have to. Don't let us get done b- without telling that. Oh, I, I mean,
2: well, he was just, he, <laughs> he had an amazing sense of humor. It's all I can say. He had a serious potty mouth. (laughs) I don't know what else. His jokes were just like, we couldn't believe what he was saying. And I should have been prepped because a good friend of mine that was in the average white band, Tiger McNeil became his drummer for years. But when he did the show, we used, I guess it was Brian Dunn at that point. I forget because the musicians in the band changed over the years a couple of times, but his jokes were just like unbelievable. I would never have expected his jokes to come from him. There's been so many uh, moments on the show personally that were like so important to me. I'm a rock guy, so that's really my love. Although I grew up listening to everything from Stevie Wonder, Sly and Family Stone. My mom was a classical pianist. My older brother was a blues guitar player, so all the British Invasion stuff. But Todd Rundgren was one of those records that was playing in my house when I was a kid, 24-7. And now i played with Todd not only twice on Live from Daryl's House, but I was in his band when he opened up for Hall. And we've done a whole bunch of things together. Those kind of things are so... Super, super special because those artists go so far back with me in my history. So to have played with them and play these songs that you grew up listening to were unbelievable. And Cheap Trick, I was a huge Cheap Trick fan, discovered them when I was 14 years old, 15 years old. Billy Gibbons and Joe Walsh. I mean, it's just been, you know, kind of (laughs) crazy.
3: You know, I was going to ask Elliot. Yeah. About working with Kenny Loggins on that show. Now, before you say anything. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I've always said that if you can work with Kenny Loggins, you can work with anyone.
2: Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying.
3: (laughs) Okay, there you go. I was lucky, fortunate, and blessed to have gotten that gig. Yeah. How long did you play with him? Off and on for about 10 years. Oh, wow. I didn't know it was that long. Wow, that's that's amazing. I did the Leap of Faith record, or I should say that I played three songs on the Leap of Faith record with three different producers. Okay. He's a perfectionist. Yeah. Yeah. But I got the opportunity to work with Kenny Loggins and work with David Foster and work with all of those people because of Kenny Loggins. But he, he can put you through the ringer. Yeah. The drummer's seed is the hot seat in that band. Mostly because uh, Tristan Bowden was so incredible. I learned a lot. But I was going to ask you, Elliot, I mean, (laughs) did did he make you guys jump some hoops? Just trying to play Um, my God.
2: I know exactly where you're going with this. I had never worked with him before, other than that show. I could tell instantly that this guy, he's a perfectionist, and he wants every note of his music to sound correct. I like that. I'm all for that. To a certain point, you know, if you do an environment like Daryl's show, okay, you're playing with a whole new group of musicians, you're going to hopefully leave some room for everybody to kind of do their own thing and kind of just let it go where it naturally wants to go. You would think on the outside that Daryl is sort of perf- a perfectionist, and he really isn't. He's very instinctual. Now, they had worked together previously. Kenny had toured with Hall and Oates, so they were definitely acquainted. This was the situation that they were actually playing songs together and trying to honor each other's songs. So... <laughs> There was a couple of moments, not with me or really with anybody. I mean, he didn't have a problem with anything other than there was an uncomfortable moment where Daryl was not singing the harmony. And Kenny said, well, he said, no, no, Daryl, this this is the harmony. This is the line. And (laughs) Daryl said, he said, Kenny, uh, I'm going to sing it the way I want to sing it. (laughs) Well, there you go. We could feel the tension sort of building. Up to this moment, and then it sort of just got released. Everybody realized, let's just make the best of this, and uh, and ultimately, I think it went well.
3: <laughs> it always turns out well, but yeah, just getting there sometimes is kind of weird.
4: Yeah, yeah. Which Hall and Oates songs get sung at those events? How do they pick that?
2: It's really up to Daryl and the artist, too. You know, whoever the guest is on the show is going to have their favorites that they want to do. But, you know, if they say, well, I want to play Sarah Smile. We've done Sarah Smile so many times with different artists, so they have to try to pick some different things. He tries to go a little bit into the deeper cuts and get a little bit more unique with it. You know, we've covered all the obvious hits, but I mean they've got a lot of material obviously, so there's there's still plenty of songs that haven't been done. What's the most difficult song at live at Daryl's house that you've had to learn? There has been some <laughs> and I should remember But unfortunately, there's been so many songs that I played on that show. There has been some ones that have been more challenging. But Furman, you know, the more you do something over and over and over again, even in different musical situations, the easier it sort of becomes. When you're working with four or five other great musicians, you get on a roll. For me, it's always about being super, super prepared. But there's some challenging moments for sure. The first time I work with Todd Rundgren, like I said, he's one of my heroes. His songs are very harmonically complex. There's a lot of chords and the similar approach to Daryl. I mean, they're both from Philly. They both have this kind of similar approach to how they write songs, but lots of chords. Everything is changing. Nothing stays the same in a song. It's always evolving and changing. So it just on your toes which is a good thing
4: yes yeah is it odd to have three people f- or former average white band members in that band <laughs> not for me
2: it's fantastic because i love them dearly you know brian dunn is he's an amazing drummer but he's just he's one of the best people i know he's a great person and he was he came into the average white band about a year before i left and then clyde has been in and out of Paul and Oates and obviously took my place in Average White Band. And Porter, he was never officially in Average White Band, but he was kind of in that moment in time. I think he did one of the videos and one of the songs I wrote for the Average White Band way back when. So it's great to have people that you you have a history with around you. It's a good thing.
1: I just have one more question for both of you guys, and then we're going to close out with the soft pass trivia, music trivia which uh, I'll explain in a bit. But I just wanted to know, Elliot, can you share some of the funny things that happen that we don't get to see at uh, the tapings? And then, Herman, also, what's the funniest thing you've ever seen at a gig? So, Elliot, you can start. The funniest things? Oh, God. I mean, there's just got to be some stuff that happens that, you know, off-camera or setting up that the fans don't get to see.
2: (laughs) Oh, God. Okay, there's something that comes to mind. And I I, I can't say the name of the band, but there was a band that came on live from Daryl's house. And (laughs) something was said about some musical performance that was on the record. And it was said not by me. It was said by somebody. And unbeknownst to that person, the manager of the band was standing right behind them. (laughs) <laughs> and once it was realized, it was, uh, it changed the tone of the. Yeah, <laughs> but it was all good. Actually, that episode came out really, really good.
1: Anybody ever just spill a big thing of food in the cooking sh- section or, you know, like just crazy stuff? There's got to be some funny moments.
2: It's not funny so much, but we all know Booker T, legendary. Just one of the best of the best of the best. When he came on to do live from Daryl's house, okay, we know we're going to do Green Onions. I'm like, oh my God, this legend's going to be right next to me. So the band usually shows up early in the morning. We run through the songs a couple of times. So Booker T comes and he's, you know, getting his Hammond together and he's dialing it in. And I noticed I'm looking over at him. He just does not look happy. And he just looks like, man, don't come next to me. Don't say. And I really wanted to just go up to him and shake his hand and go, I am so honored to play with you. This is going to be great. And I just got this really heavy vibe from him, like just... You know, I'm doing my thing, man. I don't want to talk. So it was kind of off-putting. We start doing the songs and he starts opening up and seems to be getting happier and happier. And then we get to the food segment after the show and everything by then is going great. We sit down to to eat and he says, man, this has been one of the greatest days of my life. (laughs) And I'm thinking this guy is pissed off the whole day. And he's just, this was unbelievable. This was one of the, Uh. (laughs) (laughs) that was a very unusual situation. Mostly, you know how to read the artist and 99% of the times it's always been great. But that was the
3: one time that really threw me.
1: What about you, Herman? What's the most hilarious thing that's ever happened at a gig?
3: This was years ago now, okay? Years ago, back when I was with Tower and the Average White Band were on the show together. Their bus is off front, our bus is right behind them. And Alan, you know, says, Herman, come on the bus here and have a drink with us, you know? <laughs> and this is before the show. So literally, I'm thinking we're going to have one drink for them to go on stage and do their thing. So we have the one drink. I said, well, thank you, guys. Have a great show. We'll see you. And wait, where are you going? And next thing I know, there's an empty bottle. Now, I I can't walk off the bus because I'm drunk as hell. (laughs) Those guys, it was like mother's milk to them. I mean, Alan, Ani, it's water to them. And they went out and played a fantastic show. And then I blasted out my gourd. <laughs> they <laughs> saved the
2: best for after the
3: show. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: They did that to me one time in Atlantic City. They invited me to one of their rooms. And, of course, I had to bring a tribute, if you will, some McCallum. Uh, there you go. They're just like, it's water. And I'm sitting there and just more and more
3: and more and more. It seems to be that way with guys like that. When I was working with Tom Jones... It was the same thing. I would sit there night after night with Tom Jones because I loved hearing the stories. Hanging with Elvis. I mean, he's like a blues and rock and roll aficionado. Oh, yeah. What a singer. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Amazing. I'm the only one that's there. Now, granted, I've never had Cristal before, but with Tom Jones, that's what you drink. So here we are. And literally, we are somewhere like in Spain, I think. And they have that, that law over there. Oh, they there. don't
1: close. Yeah, right. As long
3: as someone is in the bar, the bar stays open. Yeah. So there's just Tom, myself, and Tom's, you know, the guy who makes sure Tom wakes up every morning. Uh, <laughs> so he's sleeping, though, you know. So, so Tom is telling me all these fantastic stories. And, you know, and I'm looking outside, and the sun is coming up. And Tom says, you know, Herman, and says, uh, what else would you have to drink there, lad? I said, well, Tom, it... It's six o'clock in the morning. The sun's coming up. He says, (laughs) nonsense, nonsense, bartender. And we drank all the way through. Wow. I have memories of
2: listening to Tom Jones because my mom would just be in love with him and watching his show when I was a little kid. His voice is just, he's one of the best singers, one of the best soul singers in the world, I think.
3: One of the last legends that are out there, you know.
2: I, I do have a quick little story I'll tell you. I'll make it really short. We were doing a uh, show, Paul and Oates doing a show. I think it was in Memphis. It was a big festival. Sheryl Crow had already played. We come out, we're doing our thing, and we get to She's Gone. Because of where I'm stationed on the stage, I can see Sheryl's over to the side of the stage, and she's loving it, and she's really feeling it. We do She's Gone. And I can just tell, I look at looking over at her, and she's singing along to the song, and she's really in the moment. And just walks out on stage and goes right up to Daryl and goes right at his side and starts singing with him. Now Daryl is looking straight ahead. <laughs> he has the idea that Cheryl Crow is next to him. All he thinks is that there's some crazy woman that broke up and got on stage and he get this girl the hell off of my stage. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my. She's not getting anywhere with Daryl. So she looks over at John and John's like, oh, come over here. Come over here. So she goes over to John's mic. She starts singing. And now Daryl looks over and realizes it's Cheryl. And then she comes over to Daryl and they hug and it's all good. But for a moment, it was like...
1: (laughs) Foiled again. Uh, Foiled again by Daryl. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. (laughs) All right guys. So we have one last segment and this is how it works. It's a trivia game. And it's real simple. I get to pick who's on my team. Whoever's left goes on Alan's team. And then once Alan hears the subject of the trivia questions, he will determine whether my team is going to answer or his team is going to answer. And then whoever gets four right questions out of five wins. So if you get four wrong, we win. If you're playing for your side and vice versa. Sounds complicated. It's really not. So. Okay. (laughs) I'm going to pick Elliot as, as my, uh, my person. course you are. But Alan gets to pick who answers the question. So the subject for the trivia is popular music in the 1970s. Alan, who's going to answer? Oh, Herman. All right, Herman, you got to get four out of five. It's not hard. Oh, my goodness. Okay. In 1979, which duo... Had the Billboard Top 40 number one hit, No More Tears, Enough is Enough.
3: Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Uh, No More Tears. And in
1: parentheses, Enough is Enough.
3: Uh, wow. Wow. Let me see. 1979, a duo. It was a duo. Oh, wait, wait. No More Tears. Robert Streisand. And who was that? Donna Summer.
1: Donna Summer. All right. right. Ding, ding. He gets it. All right.
3: I I I had to get to the chorus of the song.
1: Elliot, did you know that one? Totally not. (laughs) Okay. All right. right. Question two. Okay. The Beatles broke up in late 1970. Their final number one was The Long and Winding Road. In June of the same year, when they broke up, which ex-Beatle was the first one to put out a song on the top of the Billboard charts? Ringo. That's wrong. It was George Harrison, My Sweet Lord. Really? Oh, no. All right, you got your one wrong. Come on, Herbert. Okay. Come on, Herbert. This one should be easy. In 1972, the Rolling Stones released a song called Tumbling Dice. On which album did this song appear?
3: Oh, God. Oh, that is easy. Um, that is easy. Wait, 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 wait! I just want to make
1: sure I'm right. Uh, <laughs> He's on his computer cheating. I no, know you no, are. No no,
3: <laughs> no, 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 no! I wish I could. I wish I could. I know that one.
1: 1972, "Tumbling Dice." 1972. What album? The Rolling Stones.
3: Yeah, uh, you know what? I. Oh. Steel Wheels. No, no. oh, Elliot?
1: I, well, I'm going to guess at Exile on Main Street. Ooh. You're not required to answer, but yes, that's right.
3: Okay. Uh, I'm sorry, guys.
1: We could do the other two just for fun. This 1967 release by Smokey Robinson and the Miracles did not hit at first, but resurfaced in 1970 and became a number one hit. What tune was it? Hmm. First released in 1967, it didn't didn't take, and then came back in 1970 and became a number one.
3: It wouldn't be Tears of a Clown, would it?
1: That's right. Tears of a Clown. Oh, oh, wow. And the last one, what was the 1970 Jackson 5 song that also became a hit for Mariah Carey over 20 years later? Yeah. I'll
3: be there. I'll be yeah.
1: there. Yeah. <laughs> You were only one off her. I can't believe that. And I'm a Stones freak, too. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, hey, thanks so much for coming on the show and just sharing some bullshit stories with us and taking us through the history of your pedigrees and all that. It was a great time. Alan, thanks for helping set this up. It was really fun to hear some of these stories tonight. You
3: guys were awesome. This was so much fun. I got to put this out there. If we get, you know, beyond this thing that's going on out there, I'm looking for a gig. So if anybody needs a drummer, let me know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Why don't we give a little opportunity here? You both have uh, websites, right? com.
3: Yep,
4: exactly.
1: And same with Herman, right? HermanMatthews.com?
4: Correct. And they both have solo CDs and (laughs) peanut (laughs) brittle. Thank you, guys. Take care.
1: Soft Pass is a Wiggle the Wire audio production. We'd like to thank our bus drivers Kent C. Straight and Miles Tugo. our audio advisors Stereo Blaren and Microphone, studio lights by Annie Position, our house electrician is Maxwell Power, our union steward Manny Kin, our monitor engineer Tad Moore, our music transposer Betty. Dropped it. Our staff bartenders, Ryan Koch and Brandy DeCanter. Our bluegrass music supervisor, Amanda Lynn. Our accountant, Owen Cash. Our cleanup crew supervisor, Armand Hammer. Catering by Candace Spencer and Bill Loney. Our valet, Ford Parker. And our guitar tech, Rusty Steele. For Alan Tillis, I'm John Michaels saying thanks for listening.
0: This has been Soft Pass. Find us on Facebook at Soft Pass Podcast. Special thanks to Blue Microphones and the law firm of Shulman Rogers. Theme music by the Sam Giannis Band. Join us again next time for more stories about the entertainment industry.